This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Hey, this is Morgan Lee, and you're listening to Quick to Listen. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Mark Galley. Hey, Mark. Hey, Morgan. Good to be back after a time away. Welcome back. How's yes. it going? Good. I was in New Orleans for a week. And where did you stay at New Orleans? I stayed in an Airbnb. In the French Quarter? Or? No, no, about uh, 10 minutes from the French Quarter. So you hung out with your daughter and son-in-law? Yes. Actually, the main goal was to uh, bring an outline to a book. And? And golf. Mission accomplished? Mission accomplished. And spent some time with my daughter and son-in-law. Mission accomplished. Well done. Didn't you, last time you went down there, you like built them a fence or something? I did do that. Is it still so, there? It's still there. I do <laughs> I do check it every time. Well, cool. So who's our guest on the show today? Our guest is uh, Professor Theon Hill. He's an assistant professor at Wheaton College, and he specializes in radical slash prophetic rhetoric as a crucial form of civic engagement and public policy. That's a mouthful, but as we get into the talk, you'll see why he's the perfect person to have on this podcast. Hey, Theon, welcome. Thank you so much. It's a joy to be with my brothers and sisters of Christianity today. You know, Theon has so much dedication that he actually came here at 8 a.m. in the morning in the studio today. In the Chicago snow, of all matters. Is that not something you're familiar with? Oh, I'm from Chicago, born and bred now. I love it. You know, <laughs> horrible weather, but it's, <laughs> it is a trek. Well, welcome. We're glad to have you here. Thank you so much. All right. So here's the question that we're going to talk about this week. Are white evangelicals who voted for Trump racist? Dun, dun, dun. So just a reminder, Quick to Listen is made possible by all of you and your support for our publication. Listeners of this show get our magazine for $10 a month, and that is possible at orderct.com slash quick to listen orderct.com slash quick to listen. I've been promoing a lot of the Christmas stuff that we have in our archives and on Christian history at social media. And it's really reminded me of what a great resource it is to have Christianity today. I can't tell you how much stuff that I've learned about Christian history just by reading through our archives and through this Christian history content. So if you want to have richer, fuller holidays, and as I've been also suggesting on social media, impress slash wow slash correct all your friends as well, I'd highly recommend that you subscribe subscribe, and then you read through the stuff that we have here. So orderct.com slash quick to listen. $10 is really the lowest price that we have available for the magazine ever. It's basically our Black Friday price, but we're giving it to all of you guys for listening to the podcast. Now back to the show. So this week marks a month since the election where exit polls revealed that 81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump, um, which according to exit polls was more than Romney or McCain, although some polls since the election have kind of disputed these numbers. During the campaign, Trump questioned the fairness of a Mexican-American judge based on his ethnicity. He repeatedly talked about building a wall on the Mexican-American border. He suggested that Mexico, quote unquote, was sending people into the country who were, quote, bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. For these and other reasons, more than half of Americans consistently said that the term racist described Trump in a YouGov economist surveys that were conducted over the fall campaign. So this is one reason why many hashtag never Trump evangelicals have said or implied that evangelicals who voted for Trump are either racist or wanted to give racism a pass. So last week in the New York Times, there was a column by Shane Claiborne and Tony K. 
Campolo, and it said, quote, evangelicalism was closely associated with the campaign of Donald J. Trump, and more than 80 percent of white evangelicals voted for the president-elect. This, despite large numbers of African-American, Latino, Asian, young, and female evangelicals who were fiercely opposed to the racism, sexism, and xenophobia of Mr. Trump's campaign. There was also another Washington Post opinion piece where the Reverend William Barber said to Franklin Graham, overt racism is anathema. But he thanks God for the same triumph that the white nationalists of the alt-right celebrate because Graham inherited a religion that accommodated itself to slavery in America and has morphed over and again for 150 years to fuel every backlash against progress towards racial justice in American history. So... If we look at the numbers, these were numbers that came out from Pew Research Center and they came out in October. So before the election of the white evangelical Trump supporters, 45 percent of them said they were voting for Trump to support Trump. But a much more significant number, in fact, a majority, 51 percent said they were voting against Clinton. Also, as far as stuff that was a key concern, I thought this was interesting as well when when Pew was asking, you know, what is the main reasons why have that are affecting how you're voting right now? The number one and number two concerns were terrorism and the economy. People talked a lot about the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court was actually sixth on there. Well, abortion um, and treatment of ethnic minorities were numbers 11 and 12. So anyways, we have a lot of stuff going on. Um, there's this charge of white evangelical racism that we really want to get into today. And, you know, it was it was implied and discussed before the election, but in many people's minds, it has kind of been settled or, or validated by these exit poll numbers that came out. So our question is, is this true? And we have a whole litany of questions to kind of delve deeper into that. This is the time of the show we do a gut check, um, and the gut check, of course, is when we give kind of a succinct response to how um, the news makes us feel. And so how do you feel when you hear this charge about white evangelicals who voted for Trump being racist? Yeah, one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast on this topic is because it, when I hear that line, I'm, I'm, I feel very ambiguous, because when I think of a racist, I think of Bull Connor setting dogs on black pro peaceful protesters. I think of George Wallace blocking school doors. I think of uh, Ku Klux Klan hanging people. And I think, gosh, I'm, I'm not that. And yet I recognize that I, uh, like most people, am biased in various and sundry ways. It doesn't surprise me to think that I might be biased against black people. I'm a bias against overweight people, even though I'm an overweight people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Brother, you looking good. Don't let, them, don't let them hold you back. <laughs> so there's a part of me that goes, I don't get it. I don't see it. And there's a part of me that says, yeah, I suppose, but uh, as a journalist, I'm looking at that word racist and thinking, what exactly is meant by that? I have a much less visceral reaction to the word racism. So when I see these charges, I generally think the idea of being racist seems like a pretty low barrier to, to cross over. It doesn't necessarily imply that you have to be at the level of the KKK in order to be considered racist. So when I hear that claim, I, I guess I don't necessarily blink. And I also... I would personally say that there are people who voted third party or for Clinton who I could also imagine being racist. But again, I don't know if this necessarily contains the same gravity as the way that you're seeing it. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's the difference between a millennial and a boomer because I was raised during the civil rights era and that's just part of the 
synapses have been frozen in my head as sure. to what a racist is. So that's a really interesting perspective. Yeah. Well, and when I get to be your age, who knows? <laughs> who knows what you'll have. <laughs> yeah. So let's just uh, make sure we're talking about the same thing or what exactly are we talking about. And let me just give us a somewhat superficial overview of how I hear the word racist used as a journalist. There is, of course, hardcore racism, someone who believes they're superior to another race and they want to subjugate that race. So that certainly fits the Ku Klux Klan. And there are those I've read about who actually believe that, believe in the superiority of their race, but don't have much interest in forcing their ways on others. They just want to live in peace away from that other group. Then there is a more loose, that's a more strict definition, uh, a dictionary definition, those who think they're superior to another race. Uh, then there's a looser definition that we're st- we've been using the last, I don't know, five to ten years or who knows how long. Basically, one who distrusts, is uncomfortable with, or doesn't particularly like people of other races or ethnicities. And often people use the word uh, b- a racial bias or bias against race in the same category as bias against all sorts of things. Overweight people would be an example. And there are those who know they have this bias and wish it wasn't true. And there are those who don't think they have this bias, but they act in ways that suggest that's, in fact, what they believe. And then there's a third association that's come up in the Trump election, and that is those who uh, who give a pass or don't specifically condemn racially tinged comments or racist behavior. I think this is what is meant when critics of uh, white evangelical Trump voters call them racist or imply that they're racist. I think this is what they must mean, because obviously they don't have any evidence any other evidence of what how they could be racist? A, do you think that's a fair representation of how racism is talked about? And are there things I've just not seen or heard? One of the challenges about even engaging this moment is we need a good definition of what racism is. And each of the lines that you just um, gave, while they definitely capture portions of what racism is, they're primarily focused on the individual. Okay. And so if we were to take it a little bit further, it's not just that I'm looking at the Bull Connor or the George Wallace or even the Strom Thurmond. Those those are definitely real things with racism and how they operate in society. We have individual racism, but it also functions within communities. You know, we think we're 20 miles from Chicago right now where restrictive covenants and redlining became racist practices to keep communities segregated. We often, so we see it on individual communal levels and structural levels. So I think if we're to properly engage this issue of racism, we need a good definition of what it is, because until we have a strong definition of the various ways in which it operates, we don't understand how it works in society, and that inhabits, our, I mean, that limits our ability to talk about it. Well, give us a, a definition that you'd, be, you'd feel comfortable with. Yeah, I would say racism is the individual, communal, or structural discrimination against people of color in an intentional or unintentional manner in a way that marginalizes them. Okay. Well, let's keep that in mind. I think the the one dimension that has been added to what I've said is the structural dimension. I'm not quite sure how that applies to white evangelicalism, but maybe you can help us with that. Of course. Because uh, what I see, as a good evangelical, I tend to think in individualistic terms. Of course. And that's the thing that's most important to me. But I don't want to deny the the reality of the structural. So in terms of... the looser, the looser definition, and maybe we can bring in the structural dimension here. In terms of a person who has an unconscious or conscious bias, I, I don't think many people would disagree. I think Morgan kind of mentioned that already. I don't have a problem if you're going to call me racist and what you, that's what you mean. Well, yeah, I have bias against all sorts of things. Is it helpful, in your view, to call that racism, or is it better uh, to call that a racial bias? And is there, is there any really meaningful difference there to you? 
So I think there's differences in terms of degree. So if we think of scripture, scripture is going to use the word, you know, fornication or sexual immorality, depending on what version you're reading, to define a whole host of sins. So we have everything from just basic lust to having an extramarital affair that could be tied into that um, definition. So when we talk about bias and the ways it works in society, in contrasting that with a bull counter, I think we're talking about different degrees. I think racial bias is a more precise way of getting at what you're talking about when we're talking about like the unconscious ways in which race affects how we treat different people. So I think it's, it's more precise at targeting this is the problem. It might be a generational thing. I know as a uh, baby boomer raised during the civil rights era, I don't find it helpful to start the conversation by saying someone calling me a racist, even though even if they were to define it in the careful way that you just did, I would go, I, I can acknowledge that. I still viscerally just go, I, I don't really want to have a conversation with you anymore because it doesn't register with me. But you don't feel that way. If someone were to walk into a room and say, well, white people and white evangelicals like you, Morgan, are racist, that, that wouldn't put you off. Not necessarily, no. But I've also been, I don't want to say like steeped in readings and articles and discussions where we've had these conversations. So I, I think that maybe my, my guard is far less down than it might have been a couple years ago even. Before college, I probably would have been especially confused by that charge, and given that I grew up in a house where my father is Chinese and Hawaiian and my mom is Caucasian. And so it would have not necessarily wrong true, or it would have been kind of like, well, how is that possible? Because this is where I, where I grew up. A lot of the ways that my guard has gotten down has been because of the fact that I've heard that unpacked. And so now when someone uses the label, it doesn't necessarily trigger me in the same way. This is why talking about the structural component of racism is so important. Because when we limit it to strictly individual terms, I think we fail to see the way that people are using it. So when I talk about certain groups or exercising racist or articulating racist attitudes, I'm not always calling them a George Wallace or a Bull Connor. In some ways, if we look at the United States of America, it was not just racist people with good values. That racism infected those values. Equality at the Founding Fathers did not mean black people. It did not mean white women. There were a lot of groups left out of it. So that legacy of white supremacy lives with us to this day. And so it even affects how we think and how we understand our values. So in some ways, when we talk about racism, we're talking not just about how individuals treat one another, but we're talking about how a society feels about different groups of people and how that society collectively feels about groups of people. So if we're talking about racism in the context of this election, it may not always be that this person is or is not a Bull Connor uh, descendant. It may be that this person is participating in a racist structure, intentionally or unintentionally. So this is one thing that I've been personally struggling with, though. Do you think that currently we have enough or we have a broad enough discourse or vocabulary to articulate the behaviors of someone like a Bull Connor with someone who doesn't necessarily feel like they have actual you know, racial amicus in their heart. Because to me, there are meaningful differences between those different types of people and using one label as a catch-all actually diminishes what Bull Connor was about, if that makes well, sense. Well, it also, I would ask the question structurally as well, in the pre-civil rights era, there were, there were clear and definite exclusion of African Americans from mainstream of life. Today, it's often uh, inadvertent, subtle, uh, s things that are hard to see and without massive scientific social studies. Uh, that does strike me as a different structural social problem than what we had pre-60s. Am I, am I naive about something here? One of the things I would say is that whether we go from slavery to Reconstruction, Reconstruction to pre-civil rights movement, civil rights movement to the present, one of the things that we observe is that racism evolves. 
it evolves with the times. And so one of the things that you'll hear many um, African-Americans on my side of the track say in this day and age, nothing's changed since the 60s. And clearly, I'm not leaving here today worried about getting lynched on my way home. So we can identify clear changes in society. But I think what they're talking about when they say nothing's changed, and I think Eddie Glaude in his book Democracy in Black does an excellent job of explaining this, is that there's a, still a clear value gap in how different lives are privileged or appreciated in American society. And we see that as you talked about some of the social scientific research. African Americans consuming 12% of the drugs, but only six, but 65% of the arrests for drugs. They look like a drug user. If I I go into a job interview or I send my resume and they can tell from my um, resume that I'm African-American, my chances of getting that job go down 30 to 50 percent. And those are not necessarily conscious decisions that that employer or that law enforcement official are making, but there's something in how they view an African-American that says this person is more likely to commit a crime or more likely to be a poor worker. And so there's still a value gap that sustains some of the segregation, some of the differences that we experience. And that's one of the challenges that we face is how do we talk about that in a way that's not a direct attack against my brothers or sisters as a Bull Connor or a George Wallace? How do we helpfully engage that problem? Yeah, yeah. So in your view of uh, white evangelicalism, we've given very various perspectives on it. I know this is a generalization and professors hate generalizations. <laughs> what constitutes white evangelical racism in the broadest definition of the term today? Which is it? Is it, is it the... Uh, it certainly you th- you obviously would think it's structural, partly structural, and I want to talk about that. What that looks like in the church is it conscious? Is it? I suspect you don't think it's vicious, like uh, Bull Connor. Not Ku Klux always. Klan. I mean, I've experienced both kinds. You so, have. Yes. Okay. Talk about that. Uh, everything from being called a nigger to being told I should be grateful not to go that I'm not back in Africa, um, being called a coon. You name it, I've been called it. Okay. But that's not also my typical experience. Okay. Um, a more. I'm sorry. This is by white evangelicals. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, and the, this is the hard thing for someone who's African American or Hispanic American is that I experience it more among evangelicals than I do outside the church. Okay. Um, and that's one of the biggest challenges that I think many people on my side of the tracks face. So I would say Imani Perry uses the term post-intentional racism. And I think it's a really helpful term for us to talk about what we experience in the church. And so when we talk about how we might experience that concept or how we might experience um, racism in in ways, it's I have a preference for this music over this music in terms of white worship styles or expecting blacks to always assimilate to white norms. There's pressure for me to live and talk and act a certain way. And in some ways, my culture is diminished in those moments. And that puts unfair pressure on me to live a certain way, to act a certain way, and to even articulate my faith in a certain way that discourages racial unity in the church. Um, I think when we look at some religious practices, why are churches still so segregated? It's because of things like musical practices. It's because of things like preaching styles. And we do not have an inclusive church that embraces and tolerates and encourages different groups from different cultural standpoints to cross cultural barriers and engage with one another. Is the fact that there are all black churches and all white churches, is that fundamentally a problem that needs to be solved? Or is that a a happy compromise with this notion that we we do enjoy and we do experience God differently when we do worship in our own style and our own music. Here's why I think it's a problem at times, not always, not universally. You know, you said us professors hate overgeneralizations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you trace the history of the segregated church, 
it traces back to the late 1700s in Philadelphia when brothers like Richard Allen and Absalom Jones are kicked out of the church. And that was racism motivated the segregated churches. So what does that do in particular to black and white Christianity? It puts them on different theological trajectories. And so if you look at black and white churches today, they have different roles in the community. The black church is a place of empowerment and one of the few social sites of empowerment in black America. White church has a different function. And so I think if we consider these things and the reasons for segregation, it's not always a problem if I'm in a black community that my church is going to be predominantly black. The issue is that when we are in areas that might be fairly segregated cities, we can join together for the athletic events. We can join together in schools. We can join together in this. But we come together and worship God. We feel like we are on completely different planets. And that's a problem because in Christ, we should have more in common than that which separates us. We had a whole cover story on racial bias in church. It basically, it boiled down to churches inadvertently practice racial bias when they are welcoming people. They tend to welcome people of their own race much more easily, consistently, warmly than others. In one sense, that's not a surprise. As I said, most people understand their bias, and when they were told they have a racial bias, they go, well, that, that makes sense. I'm a, I'm a person who has a lot of biases. So in your reading of the Bible, how does the Bible illuminate our various definitions of racism, especially yours, to help us give some insight as to where we might take the next steps in the church? We need a more robust theology of sin and the ways in which it operates. So one of the passages that I found particularly helpful actually has nothing to do with racism um, specifically, but I think Leviticus chapter 4 is really helpful for us in this discussion. Why Leviticus 4 is so helpful is because Leviticus tells us how sin operates. And so if you look at that chapter, it talks about if you sin intentionally, offer this kind of sacrifice. If your leader sins, offer this kind of sacrifice. If you as a community sin, offer this kind of sacrifice. And so what that chapter does is it recognizes different ways that we sin and that sin operates on both individual and structural communal levels. And if we can grab a hold of that and have a more robust theology of sin, we can engage structural racism. We can engage communal racism. We can engage racial bias in ways that say, hey, brother and sister, I'm coming alongside of you and we have to work through this together because we have to understand we're talking about the vicious legacy of white supremacy. White supremacy doesn't need white people. I know just as many brothers and sisters of color of different ethnicities who are just as articulate with forms of white supremacy as white people. So this is not just a white problem. What do you, what do you mean by that? So you could have a brother, sister enter a McDonald's, um, and I mean a brother, sister of color here, uh, and you have an African-American working behind the counter. It's like, oh, my goodness, black people are always so slow. That's white supremacy, and that's being articulated by someone of color. And so we need a better definition of racism, or otherwise we won't be able to engage the ways it surfaces. And so if I can even explore the ways in which white supremacy impacts my reactions to people of color, okay, this isn't just me telling my dear brother Mark, you got to get it together. This is me saying we as a community need to get it together. Okay, but what if that has to do with the person's just personal experience? So let me give a uh, what I'm sure you'll consider a racist uh, comment. For some reason... I would have more uh, more confidence in a probably a doctor who is Asian than one who is white. I have this impression of Asians as being really smart, hardworking, and very conscientious. I think whites are that way too, but I think the Asians, I just my experience of Asians, my reading about Asians and my personal experience of Asians is they are really good at these sort of things. So I tend to have more confidence, implicit confidence. So is that a racist comment? Is that, or is that an extrapolation from my experience? What, what, where does that fall in your understanding? 
I would define that more as a prejudice than racism, because um, there's a power dynamic there. There's a there's a lot of now we're getting into deep academic discussions about okay. prejudice versus racism. So I would view that in a slightly different. Ca- it's still problematic to me, but I would view that more as a prejudice. Um, and what I would say there is that you're robbing the white brother or sister of his or her individuality. But some of that's based on the fact that uh, I, I grew up in an era when. Um, there was a backlash against Asians in the California, University of California system because they were so smart and so hardworking. They were taking up more spaces in the, in the academic community, and whites were saying, we, sh- we shouldn't allow so many Asians in. We should have as many seats as they do or more seats than they do. So that's based on an actual fact that Asians are, in fact, smarter, harder working. Is that a fact, though? I think that that would be the place where you would want to say, like, why do I have this assumption and what structurally might make it possible for there to be so many Asian-American Yeah, yeah that, exactly. that's true. But what I'm saying is that uh, so I'm not a person who will have done extensive research into into this sort of thing. But I'm saying it's it strikes me as that it's more it's it, the use of the word prejudice is not quite if it was irrational or non-rational, if there was no basis of evidence for it. I could see it being called prejudice. If, in fact, all the information I have coming to me from good sources suggests this. Now, if you were to ask me, are all Asians like this? I'd say, of course not. But when I deal with an Asian in a professional context, my experience is that they're really well prepared. They've been really well prepared. In other words, we're at a cultural moment when this seems to be true. It doesn't have to do with their race. It has to do with this cultural moment because there were other cultural moments, 1920s, when the Chinese were still being excluded, when I doubt as a white person I would have the same opinion. But it had nothing to do with... It had less to do with their ethnicity than the cultural moment in which they found themselves. But I think what you're still doing there is you're still painting with a very broad brush. And I think you're still limiting the individuality of a brother whether or brother or sister, whether it's Asian or Caucasian, um, in terms of their ability to be intelligent. And what that, what that amounts to, and this is where both prejudice and racism gets to be a problem, is we're robbing people of the image of God. Well... And I'm saying if you're not going to give, if it, I don't see, I'm, I'm not, not saying gonna, that. Well, I'm, what I'm saying is if you're not going to give the brother or sister a chance. No, it has nothing. I, I guess I'm, I'm not saying that a white person shouldn't have that position. Let's say as a physician, should or should not have it. I'm saying viscerally, gut level, what I feel and experience. That strikes me as a different order or a different that that what's going on there is much more complicated than merely prejudice. It strikes me. That's all I'm trying to get at here. That the human interaction with another human. There's all these layers of the different things that are going on based on their history, their education, what they've read, who they've encountered. And uh, one of my concerns about the conversation about race, racism, and prejudice is we tend to look at an action or a, or a feeling, and then we say, then we give it a label. And all of a sudden, we've summarized it in a way that doesn't do justice to actually what's happened in that moment. This is why I think novelists are really good at helping us unearth sometimes a human heart and how many complicated things are going on. So, This episode is brought to you by smallgroups.com. Find everything you need to build, grow, and maintain a healthy, thriving small group ministry. Smallgroups.com equips you to develop your ministry model and train your leaders to nurture spiritual growth in group members to troubleshoot typical group problems, and also to avoid common pitfalls. Whatever your role in developing life-changing community, we have resources for you. Visit smallgroups.com today. I was thinking for a little bit about like social Darwinism and about how there was an entire type of like pseudoscience that existed 
in what, like the late 19th century, the early 20th century, obviously some of this science was used to like justify um, eugenics. But for people who held those views about race that were informed by this type of quote unquote science, would they not have had similar types of you know, this is complex. Here's the data that I'm looking at. Here's how I'm making sense of this using facts and science and studying. Um, and what what type of checks would they have had to to really like illuminate their own blind spots and not just say like, well, I've done all my homework. I guess to me, I would say like, Mark, like you you are looking at your lived experience and what's been true for that. But if it does kind of like ring a little bit, I don't know, uncomfortable to you, is the onus on you then, therefore, to kind of say, like, what's going on here, and maybe I'm not getting the whole picture? Uh, well, it, it would be, except that there are so many areas of my life that I feel that. In other words, I look at a situation, I have a reaction to it, and I go, ah, that's not really good. And I really don't have the time or energy to actually attack every one of those consciously and purposely. The sinfulness of my life is so replete that it would be impossible. So I, I don't know that the answer is, once you see that, you should attack it, somehow deal with it. It strikes me that, uh, and maybe we can start getting into the, the what's a gospelly approach to when we discern in the body of Christ, because I like let's make sure we stick this in the church. Amen. Yeah. When we discern another person has a racial bias, or any type of bias, or prejudice, whatever um, word better fits the occasion, how do we how do we how do we respond to that? I was at a I was in South Carolina after the election, and they asked me how I felt about eighty one percent of white evangelicals voting for Donald Trump. And I said, to be honest, I felt betrayed. Uh, and the reason why it felt like betrayal is not because I felt like every person was voting for Donald Trump because they were on the alt right or they were seeking to see Bannon as the chief political strategist. That wasn't my mind. That was not in my mind at all. What was a problem to me, you know, we've been having all these conversations in the church recently about racial reconciliation, and we all want to come together. And then to see that number of people vote for a candidate who had made a major part of his campaign inciting racial animosity. And that's not to say that all these brothers and sisters were responding to that when they voted for him. But it's saying that wasn't a significant enough reason to them to say, I cannot support this man. And that does not say that you should run and vote for Hillary Clinton at all. But it's saying what you're telling me and that is I'm not important enough to stand up for, and that's a problem to me. And that's when we talk about these problems of racial gaps in society and how different lives are valued, I think that kind of action is what sustains a racial gap, because that's not important enough for many of my brothers and sisters to take a stance against. Okay, well, help me here again. Mm -hmm. um, I can understand why, why you are, in, in particular, uh, angry, upset, saddened by... Uh, the racist overtones of the Trump campaign, then that's a really, given our place, our current place in history, that's a really important issue for you. Of course. Yeah. Um, and I want to honor that and respect that. Um, but why should it matter to you? And I, this, is, this is something you've just said I've heard many times. Why is it not valid for another electoral constituent to say, I think that's important, but actually I think there are other things that are more important. So for example, abortion. I think the killing of a thousand babies a day that bothers me more. No offense intended. I'm sorry to say it. It doesn't bother me much as what the uh, black community is going through. Of it's course. a terrible thing what the mm -hmm. black community is going through. But for me, it's abortion. It's the thing that grabs my heart. And for you to say you feel betrayed because I have a different political priority strikes me as, well, let me be frank, unfair. People of color, whether we're talking about indigenous Native American brothers and sisters or African Americans, we've been waiting 400 years for justice. 
And what we get told every time is there's something more important. If you look at when the Civil War is going on, there's something more important. Reconstruction, the 1876 election, they literally sacrificed blacks in the South in order to win the election. So we had a tie. Northern Republicans were granted the election on the condition that they removed uh, Union soldiers from the South. It's one thing if you're saying, we're going to do this, but we're going to be on the front lines of this issue of racial um, racial segregation, racial discrimination as it exists. But you have Christian leaders coming out and denying that there's any racism. Brother James Dobson actually denying that it was racist. Um, certain things that Trump did during his candidacy. Or Wayne Grudem rationalizing it. And those kind of things are problematic and they reinforce it because they say this is acceptable. Yeah, that isn't my reading. I mean, I've read statements because I've heard other people say that. And I've actually read statements by Dobson, Jerry Falwell Jr., uh, that have basically repudiated Trump's comments in these regards. They've said, I, I repudiate them in the strongest terms. I still think he's the best candidate for us. So that's what I'm, I'm having a little difficulty with that point because I've actually read statements in which they have repudiated. Now, I, I suppose what you're saying is they have not repudiated them enough. There's a value system that tells people of color you're not as important. It, I think it really challenges our ability to partner together as a body of Christ, because I know many brothers and sisters of color, the weekend after the election, they couldn't go to their predominantly white churches. It's like, I just can't do it today. Like, it hurts too bad. If the church is serious about coming together as one body, we need to make it serious. We need to make it a priority. Okay, but again, I, I come back to the point of... The church is called to be serious about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Racial reconciliation is one of them. Feeding the hungry is another. Dealing with sexual trafficking is another. Dealing with the environment is another. Dealing with uh, getting jobs for the poor is another. Abortion is another. So I guess I'm having a hard time understanding what, what, what would be the argument why race should trump all those other when concerns. I hear the word race, I've increasingly not heard the word race. I've just thought of that as an extension of like how people go about and live their lives. And so when someone talks about the African-American church, they're talking about how they actually go about and do church. Or if you're in an African-American community, that's just people's community. But if we were going to talk about Christians and say that like, the experience of the white Christians in this church versus the experience of the black Christians in this church and really identify the inequities um, that were there between the white Christians and the black Christians, I think we might see that as more more of a gap in these experiences and, and say like, well, why would we allow some of the Christians in here to be treated better than other Christians who are actually in there as well? Why, why are we content with the fact that certain people you know, hopefully things will get better for them later on, rather than saying, no, there's a huge gap. In the, in, and as the body of Christ, we're called to really take care of the people in our churches. So you're saying it would be more of a priority. Uh, help me to understand what you're saying. It's more of a priority if black and whites were in, were in the same church talking about the issues that they face, there would be much more likelihood of whites taking more seriously the concern for and, black justice. And what if they saw it as their fellow Americans, you know, and they said... Our fellow Americans, there's a, there's an inequity in the way that we are being treated by right. the place or we have schools. Right. One thing that seems to be different here is race, you know, in terms of the level of education that we're receiving or the quality of police interaction that we're having. But I'm also, I keep coming back to the fact that different churches, different people don't necessarily say in terms of how they want to spend the, the few time they have outside of their workplace and family obligations why they should make race a priority or why they should make abortion a priority. I don't, I don't understand the calculus to help us to determine which priority they should have. Now, maybe there's an argument to be made for that that I haven't heard, Yeah, and I'd so, like to hear it. Yeah, so, okay, so to start with, um, 
I think we have to consider that the church, you know, we could talk about other issues where we've done a fairly good job on. We might have been aggressive on it. We might have been out on front of it. In terms of charitable giving, just in general, you know, faith-based organizations give more than any other segment of society. We're in the hole on race. We are actually one of the primary forces that have contributed to it historically. It's like the 19th century historian says slavery would not have ever found harbor in American society if it didn't already have an anchor in the church. And so in some ways, we bolstered the status quo of race relations in America. Now, getting to your more important question, um, why should we care? Why should this be a priority for yeah. us? I think if you consider the history of just social activism in America and the church's declining legitimacy to speak to many of these issues, many of them hinge off of the church's inability to deal with race. I cannot tell you the number of times brothers and sisters outside the church look at me and say, you all messed up on race. Why do you want to talk about sexuality now? You messed up on race. Why do you want to talk about this issue now? You've messed up on race. And so that's a stain on our testimony. And I would go straight to Romans 2. It's like the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And so when we talk about why we have an impetus to this, it's not just because, yes, I want to be treated fairly in my country. Of course I do. But at the heart of this lies a preoccupation with the gospel and wanting to live, act, and do life in a way that reflects that we are citizens of heaven. And I think that's why this is important for all Christians to really engage. In dealing with that in the context of the church, so you're in a church that you suspect is either uh, consciously or uh unconsciously biased toward race and has structures in it that are preventing true racial conversation, true racial integration, uh, reconciliation to take place either in that local congregation or in the community. What do you feel is the, are the way that we, uh, the best way to approach this? Your specialty is on prophetic and radical rhetoric, but it is the thing that comes to mind to me and a lot of uh, people I talk to is that when we face into a, a disagreement in the church, Nine times out of ten, when the Bible talks about how do you resolve that, it does it in these terms. Always be gentle and yes, humble. Be yes. patient and with one another, making allowance for each other. Each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united, binding yourselves together with peace. And black, many black leaders, and this is not just true of black leaders, this is true of anyone who's concerned about someone who's getting marginalized, think that injunctions like this are exactly the problem They because they help us avoid confronting the real sins that are going on. They allow the majority to keep things under the lid. And the Bible does seem to encourage gentleness, gentleness and, and kindness and, forbear and everything. forbearance. Yes. Uh, you seem to be called to help us understand the role of another way of doing it. Well, especially you're talking about Paul there. And yeah. Paul was both a model of gentleness, but Paul could also get gangster at certain moments, yeah, that's, that's as we true. see in the book of Galatians. We see Jesus both loving, but we also see him flipping the tables in the temple. So I think when we consider how we approach it, at the heart of this notion of a prophetic tradition is speaking truth to power. Um, so how do we speak truth in a difficult situation? And so when we talk about showing love toward the church, let's just say you and I have a difference, and I think that you're promoting racial animosity in some regard. Okay, I'm going to approach you as a dear brother and say, brother, here's where I think there's a problem going on. I'm not going to shout at you. I'm going to approach you. I'm going to engage you. I'm going to let you talk back to me, even if I disagree with you. Um, because that's my responsibility to you as a brother in Christ. Okay, now let's just say I've been doing this for years, and it's not just you, but there's a whole system in place here. Um, and I think this is some of what you see with Jesus in the temple. It's like there's a problem here that I need to wake you up, wake you all up from. And it's like I would love to be kind, or I would love to, as Otis Redding says, try a little tenderness. But at the end of the day, like this is the only way that I can get your attention. 
And so I think that's when you see that prophetic cry come out in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos. Loving can be telling you what you need to hear rather than what you want to hear. And just because something may be harsh doesn't mean that it's unloving. There are times when I just need to really go in really gently, let my brothers and sisters talk, particularly when I'm dealing with an individual problem. That's how I'll do it. Even if it's a structural problem, I'll try to be as gentle as possible. There's times you need to get people's attention. Okay. Okay. But I try the gentleness first. Okay. Well, as an author of a book called Jesus, Mean, and Wild, I can't disagree. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk about civility a lot. And at times I'm not always, it's not necessarily civility in which context and how there's different norms of what civility looks like whether you have a a public audience that you're speaking to or you're talking one-on-one or you're in a church or you're with a bunch of strangers who don't have any attachment to each other. I think the key for me in my years of editing is this. If you simply want to reaffirm, bolster people who believe what you believe, you can be as prophetic as you want and that they will walk away. Those readers will walk away going, amen, that's what I believe. Thank God for this person saying this strongly. People who disagree with that are going to look read the first paragraph and go, I'm off. So I think if your if your goal is affirmation of your community, prophetic, strong writing is the way to do it. And so we do that in CT once in a while. We have a strong editorial about something we pretty much know our readers already agree with. We had a very strong our editorial on human sexuality in the last couple of years. It was nothing new, nothing we hadn't said a hundred times. We said it a little more strongly, and people loved it because they needed to hear this is where we stand. This is good. But if you're trying to convince someone to change their mind, uh, it strikes me that rhetorically your your ambition ought to be to come in much more gently and then do some sort of flip in the middle of it that makes them go, oh my gosh, I hadn't thought of it that way. At times, our forms of civility can serve to reinforce the status quo. Definitely, yeah. There's and no I question think, about that. And I think if we're going to go back to the civil rights movement, it's very easy for us to idealize, you know, like a Martin Luther King when he's saying that I have a dream and everyone can feel good about themselves. But we really don't like to talk about the Beyond Vietnam speech. We don't like to talk about his speech in Ghana following their liberation from British colonialism. And so I think it wasn't just the I have a dream speech that got the attention of America, but it was those things that disrupted our sense of this is okay. And so I'm not at all opposed to gentle. But I don't think that I don't think that prophetic speech only serves to bolster the ranks because many, even in the black community, rejected King when he was articulating those strong prophetic stances. I think in some ways it can shock and awaken people. And so I don't think we we need to make sure that we preserve the value of that shock and awakening. I would suggest, too, that there are two other ways that we can wake people up. And one of them is by people telling their own personal stories and experiences um, and that people's lives can almost serve as an indictment on much broader things that we want to talk about. And then the second thing, which is just giving people more history of what was going on, those are almost kind of, in some ways, like show, not tell ways to to communicate the same points as perhaps, I don't know, more sweeping generalizations. But I think that they can also be really effective as well. Well, on the prophetic side, I'm not convinced in this regard. If I'm reading an article that's about to shout at me, I'm not going to read it. So it has no no possibility of convincing me whatsoever. And I might say that perhaps Jonah might push against that. The book of Jonah? Yes. All right. You're the guest. We'll give you the last word. <laughs> and give it on the Bible. All right. Thank you all for engaging in this discussion. If you want to and you're a listener, you can go on social media to Twitter at CT Podcasts. We're on Facebook at CT Podcasts as well. You can continue the conversation there or with any of us on social media as we move into the next segment of the show. Precious moments, just to completely shift what we're talking about. We're going to talk about stuff that is making us happy when it comes to Christmas. 
So, Theon, do you want to go first? Sure. Uh, there's nothing better than giving my wife what I always get her is like a surprise gift that she's not expecting and seeing her open her eyes and see this gift. And she just has these tremendous shouts of delight when she sees something that I really try to think of through how our year related and get her something that's really special to us. That's my favorite moment of the Christmas season. Can you share us your greatest hit? My greatest hit, when I gave her a, a book of coupons of dates I wanted to take her on in the next year, and I had handwritten them all, and it was like different things like a hot air balloon ride or Did do you this go on it? Got, no, I ain't going on a hot air balloon. <laughs> <laughs> it was too hot for a brother, but it was a nice thought. <laughs> Are you on social media? I sure am, at Theon Hill on Twitter. Awesome. Mark? Yeah, I don't want my wife to listen to this because she's, a, she's an activity person. Uh, Christmas or any holiday is not good unless every minute of every day is packed with things to do. But I will admit, at Christmas, uh, I do enjoy a, a, our trip downtown to Chicago to look at the lights. We've gone to the Walnut Room with our kids and just had, had lunch there. That sort of typical Chicago, we go downtown, we may, we may go into a store, buy a thing or two that are way, way more expensive than they should be. But just being downtown Chicago with the lights and all the festivities is a nice way to spend an afternoon with the family. Completely agree. Mark, do you want to plug your newsletter? Oh, yeah. It's called The Galley Report, and you can subscribe to it by simply going to Christianity Today slash The Galley Report. I link up to articles I read during the work that I found interesting. Sometimes I comment on them. If it, if you're looking for ways to edit the amount of reading you have to do and you think my judgment is a good one, which is may or may not be true, but it'll give you four or five things to read a week that I think you'll find worthwhile. So when I was younger, my dad had this tradition, by younger, I mean pre-college, where every year he would get us an ornament and a book. It was like super thoughtful and awesome. So I really like that tradition. And everyone can follow me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you all for listening to this really important discussion. Our producer is Richard Clark. Our other producer is Cray Allred. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever podcasts are found. We will see you all next week. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.